There are people that uh, have that special person that they can't see or they're not living with. And how do you do that? It's time to reach out, but what do you do? Send an emoji? Well, like, I, I, I quite like Diana Riggs, so I'd have to hold a seance, I suppose. Um, so that, <laughs> that, that isn't going to work for me. Smashing Security, Episode 214, Lockdown Love Scams, Solar Winds, and a Data Deletion Bungle, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, Episode 214. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And Carol, we are joined this week by somebody who's brand new to the show, but not new to the pages of cyber security. If you've ever read the headlines on the BBC <laughs> and elsewhere, you will no doubt have seen our guest commenting. It's Professor Alan Woodward. Hello, Alan. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. It's very nice to be here. So for folks from further afield who may not have uh, seen you before, Alan, can you describe what you do? I suppose if you ask my family what it is I do, <laughs> a, they would say I make computers do things that they're not supposed to do. Uh, and <laughs> and when I've learned how to do that, I teach others to do it. So I'm actually a visiting professor at the University of Surrey, where we do a lot of research, and I have some students, MSc students, people like that. And then I also advise uh, various government departments in the UK and actually overseas as well, people like Europol. And then every so often, large organisations that want to know a little bit about um, how they should be acting more securely in cyberspace. Fantastic. Well, we all need a bit of that, don't we? <laughs> So let's thank this week's sponsors, 1Password. Its support helps us give you this show for free. Now, coming up on today's show, Graham, what do you got? I'm going to be talking about the mystery of the disappearing fingerprints and some other data as well. Ooh, mysterious. Alan, what about you? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the ever-ongoing story of Solar Winds. It's a story that keeps on giving. <laughs> And I'm doing the Lockdown Valentine special with Romance Scams. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, have you ever made a mistake at work? Nope. Pro, uh, uh, <laughs> I used to work with you, so you know. never made a mistake. If ever you disagreed, it was because you got it wrong. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, Alan, as a, as a visiting professor at the University of Surrey, have you would you own up to any goofs? Um, yes, I've, <laughs> I would say I quite often make mistakes, um, but I'd like to think of mistakes as an opportunity to learn. Ah, <laughs> that's what I tell the students anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now, unfortunately, yes, I've, I've made, I, and part of it is one of the very reasons I want to talk about what we're going to talk about later on, which is that. You make certain assumptions as you're analysing various incidents, for example. You base it on a certain amount of information. And as you learn more, you realise that you were mistaken. It's not so much that you were mistaken, but that you jumped to conclusions. Uh, and you learn very quickly that you really shouldn't do that. Mm. Ooh, hurry along, Graham. We've got to get to this. Well, now, <laughs> now, I used to be a computer programmer. I don't know if either of you have ever programmed computers or anything. You yes, you do. I haven't really ever. You haven't oh, even done a 10 print crawl is cool. Yes, I've done that. That's done not that. programming, really. Alan, have you ever made any programming mistakes? Oh, uh, yes, quite a few. In fact, in some of the earliest programs, I, I mean, you have to go back a long way to find the machines that I first worked on. I was mean, it punch were, cards? Were you sort of it, pushing it was, out the wrong hole? On a <laughs> it was. Uh, no, you, you joke, but it was hole with cards. Where you, you would submit them to some high priestess through a hole, and three days later, you'd get the results back. 
And you learn very quickly not to make a mistake because you'd have to go through the whole thing again. So <laughs> you, you actually became very, very assiduous with your programs. These days, people make a mistake and ah, they can just recompile it and away they go. But no, in those days, it was very much you had to be you had to be so careful. So the first half dozen, you always make a mistake in. Well, I certainly remember making some mistakes in my early days of programming. One of my first jobs was to um, write the Windows version of Dr. Solomon's Antivirus Toolkit. And the <laughs> way in which we worked in those days is we actually had no computer viruses at the office. All of the computer viruses were in Alan Solomon's spare bedroom at his house. Uh, Safe, for, for, secure. Well, good. it was more secure than having them in the office because the last thing we wanted to ever do was ship them to anyone. But that meant... <laughs> That when I did programming on the virus finding engine, I didn't actually have anything to test it against. So I remember once I was given the source code and the challenge of speeding it up a little bit. And uh, I did some work on it for a few days and I brought it back and I said, I said, I, you know, it's a fair bit faster now. I think I've increased its speed by 20% or something. So Alan took it back to the viruses and he said, well done. Yes, you have sped it up. Unfortunately, it no longer detects any malware at all. <laughs> So, so it had a zero percent detection. So it was rate. super fast. <laughs> so excellent. You know. Well done, Graham. Good thing you're a podcaster these days. Exactly. Yes. Nothing as dangerous as programming. So coding cockups can happen. And I want to talk to you about something along those lines. Now, in the United Kingdom, we have a supercomputer system called the Police National Computer System, the PNC, which stores and shares information and criminal records between forces across the country. So if police are investigating something rather than looking at old cards in a filing cabinet or anything like that, they can actually use the computer instead and they can quiz the computer. And even officers can use it for real-time checks. So if they stop someone in the street, they can call in, someone will look up on the police national computer if you're wanted in relation. I go, I got him! I got him! Right, exactly. Um, Carol, you know all, of course, about uh, being in trouble with the law. Next. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not this week. Going to tell that story, right? Well, <laughs> last month, it became headline news that some of the records stored on the Police National Computer Databases had been unfortunately lost. What do you mean lost? Well, I don't mean lost down the back of the sofa. Okay. I don't, I don't mean Interesting something. you bring up sofas. Interesting. <laughs> In fact, why wouldn't I bring up sofas? What are you talking about? Oh, you'll, see, you'll see later. Oh, is oh. It? okay. Um, in fact, over 200,000 records were reportedly deleted from the Police National Computer Oh, so database. not misplaced, but actually lost. Poofed. Lost. Yeah. <laughs> Due yeah. to what they described as a technical issue. Oh, it's such a good term. Now, I think when you've worked in the field of cybersecurity for a while, when you hear that a company is suffering from a technical issue, it's very natural to assume the worst. It's very natural to assume, oh, maybe they've been hacked. Maybe some ransomware has been planted. Maybe some yeah, malicious Yeah, you feel like they're downplaying it, right? You feel like they're downplaying the snafu that might have happened. Maybe not sharing enough detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So the Home Office, they said that the lost data related to people who had been arrested and then released without further action, okay? And mm -hmm. so you kind of think, well, that doesn't matter too much, does it? Because, you know, if the police decided not to pursue it, then big deal. But according to the National Police Chiefs Council, the NPCC, 
on at least one occasion, a DNA profile which had been taken from a suspect held in custody didn't generate a match to a crime scene as a result of this information being lost. And that obviously would impede an investigation. So I, I don't know if either of, you, either of you ever left DNA at a crime scene or anything like that. Inadvertently. Right. <laughs> so are you saying are you saying that basically innocent people's DNA has been lost? Yeah, well, actually what's what's happened in the UK is there is there is a law about what the law can do. Mm. Okay. If you are found either not guilty or you're not charged, when they collect your fingerprints or your DNA, they're not allowed to keep it. Um, yeah. and so what what happened in this case was Somebody was given a big long list of all those people that were not charged and acquitted and said, right, go through the database and weed out, to use their term, weed out the ones that weren't supposed to be in there anymore. The trouble is they they weeded out rather more than the ones they were supposed to. Ah. Over-enthusiastic weeding. It's a bit like taking a JCB to your back garden. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. that, yeah, I, that's happened to me. Over-enthusiastic <laughs> weeding is a very good term. I yeah. do do that. It's like, oh, no, that's a carrot! <laughs> Now, according to the policing minister, whose name is Kit Mulhouse, the government hopes that the records haven't been lost permanently, the ones which they did actually mean to keep, and that restoring them, they say will take about another 12 weeks. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels like quite a long time. Well, okay, look, you always will pad it by at least double. So, okay, that means they're assuming <laughs> it's going to take six weeks. And then um, they probably have never had to restore from backup before. So they've buying themselves a few weeks there and it probably will take 10 minutes, but at least they get time to put the report together and make the web page and whatever. But normally if you're restoring from a backup, it is, it is something you should test and try out, isn't it? Rather than wait until disaster. You've got to. I mean, absolutely. If you don't test a backup, it's a bit like having a fire drill that you never practice. Mm. You, you really don't want to have to practice it the first time you really need it. But I suspect there's more to this in mm -hmm. that because of the way the law is written, you shouldn't have a backup of that data. Ah. And so they will have overwritten the backups. And what they're trying to do is, as we all know, when you delete something, you don't actually delete it. You simply delete the reference to it. And then mm -hmm. whatever media you're using starts to get overwritten and overwritten and they're trying to they're trying to recover all the fragments that may be left so they'll probably be able to recover some of it but certainly not all of it i guess it depends on how industrious they've been <laughs> since it happened so this is really interesting alan so what you're saying is this is really a data recovery job this is a bit like oh, yeah. when your hard drive ends up in the bottom of the toilet or some, something like that you know it's like oh, does that happen crap. often graham well all right everyone's had a, a, a smartphone fall in the bath <laughs> oh, touche right <laughs> Everyone's had yeah. that sort of disaster happen to them, and you'd think, oh, but I need my data off it. So the challenge they have is they need to get back the data they didn't mean to delete. Yep. But they need to be really careful that the data they did mean to delete remains deleted. Exactly. Hence 12 weeks, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a, a much more complicated exercise than it first looks like. I mean, right. it's, if, if anybody's as old as me, they remember things like head crashes on. I mean, oh, yes. in those days, the hard disks we had were sort of like three feet wide and kept you about four megabytes. Um, <sighs> but if you had a hard disk crash on one of those, I mean, it really did scratch the surface mm. and you, you lost a lot of data. And then mm. you would have to recover different sectors of the, of the disk off and you would then try to see which parts of the file allocation tables could I look at to see where it should have been on the disk? And you start to sort of literally sellotape and chewing gum and you're putting all these bits of data back <laughs> together and hope that that's what was actually meant to be there. Do you think, just like there are vinyl record enthusiasts 
there are also people who are enthusiasts for old forms of data storage. Of course oh, yes. there are. Yes. Of oh, course. the data's so much better on this old Western <laughs> digital 20 megabytes. Well, there are people that are still, still out there for VC. I mean, one of the very first systems I worked on was all about collecting masses of data from, actually it was from ships, mm. uh, and it was all done on VCR tapes. And <laughs> um, it, it, because they collected so much that you could collect so much data in, in that fashion. Yeah. Some of the people that I know, they, they still will say to you to this day, well, when you get video on something like a Betamax tape, oh, it's so much better than all these modern digitized versions. Oh, yes. <laughs> Unless you can hear the crackles, it's not real music. <laughs> well, police in the meantime are being told to use alternatives. <laughs> um, <laughs> to us. I'm not quite sure. What does that mean? Well, I don't know if it means they've got their little notebooks or they've got a little black book full of dodgy-looking people, people who wear loud shirts or walk on the cracks in pavement. Court sketches. The old court sketches, exactly. He looks like a wrong one. His eyes are too close together. (laughs) That kind of thing. I have no idea. Now, no less an authority on uh, sane reaction to breaking news than Mr. Piers Morgan. Oh, your favourite, your butt bud. You love him. Friend of the show. He's called on Home Secretary Pretty Patel to resign over this matter. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I don't think Pretty Patel is the type to resign. Um, from everything I've read about her and the way she operates in the office, um, I, I think she'd, she'd probably need to be very convinced there was some evidence of wrongdoing, or maybe her boss wouldn't. And maybe the evidence has already been deleted by now. So, um, how did the data disappear? Well, it's now been revealed, as Alan was alluded to, that this was a coding error which is being blamed. So it's the programmer which did it with a piece of lead piping in the conservatory or maybe with a piece of pizza by the water cooler. Somebody coded this incorrectly. And when they were told to do the weeding, their algorithm, a bit like my algorithm when I was rewriting Dr. Solomon's antivirus detection, was a little bit too enthusiastic in one area and not in every way that it should have been. It's all about balance. Yeah. And this goof actually reminds me, do you remember, this is going to take you back, in 2007, we then had a Labour government, just to be fair. Um, So I've got some balance on the show now. Um, And they told families to keep an eye on their bank accounts for unusual activity because they lost two CD-ROMs containing the banking details 25 million individuals, seven and a quarter million families, which were put in the post (laughs) and never seen again, unencrypted. Those were the old days. You see, we've come a long way. It was, I mean, that that was basically the entire HMRC database. They put into two two DVDs, yeah, and put it in in an envelope. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure they even sent it first class. And um, (laughs) you can just imagine what happened to it. I mean, it's just... uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think. And the other thing that really worries me about that is when you think about forward secrecy, that mm. data is still out there somewhere. Yeah. And that data, although I know it's 2007, a long time ago, but the details on there are exactly the same for me as they were then. So yeah. I, I just I just hope somebody never finds those. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of, you know, breaches sort of disappear into the mists of the past, but data which was stolen as you say years and years ago can still be abused the thing is people don't move that often and one mm. of one of the things that's becoming more ever more permanent is your phone number is your mobile phone number right. in fact it's it's used as a proxy for your identity in many parts of the world yeah mm. in fact the world bank uses phone numbers and the number of phone numbers that are issued as a proxy for the population because in many parts of the world they don't issue birth certificates and death certificates but they know how many phone numbers there are 
Um, yeah. So you can start to work out how many people there are. And your phone number these days is is who you are. So if you've got that and a physical address, I mean, I, I've actually had cards cloned before when all they had to be able to set up the account was the birthday and the address. And some people will set those up as, uh, you know, as taking a unique proof of ID, which wow. of course it certainly isn't. <laughs> no. Well, I think it's another case of the public sector possibly doing a worse job of securing our personal information than private companies. Uh, it does seem to be happening time and time. I know it's yeah, a low I've bar- never heard of a private company having any issues like no, this No, I'm not ever. saying they don't, crawl. All I'm saying is, low as that bar is, um, maybe actually public sector is performing even worse. Okay, you should get a job at the Daily Mail with common sense. <laughs> well, I'll speak to my friend Piers. Perhaps. Yeah, you should. See if you can... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Alan, what story have you got for us this week? Well, the one I wanted to talk about was um, SolarWinds, sometimes called Solarigate um, by Microsoft. It all originated, or at least it appeared to originate, from when the company FireEye detected that there was something rather strange about the SolarWinds software. SolarWinds mm-hmm. is a piece of network management software, which is extremely popular. It's probably one of the most popular pieces of software nobody's ever heard of, um, <laughs> but it is literally running all the infrastructure that's around us, including in some very large government departments, and particularly in America. So they found that there was something very peculiar in, in this software, in that it had a backdoor in it. So they thought, well, that's not right. It shouldn't have a backdoor in it. But the thing that confused them more is they couldn't find out how it had got in there, because... It wasn't in the source code. So if you imagine the build process for this software is it, some very clever people write the source code, it then gets put into the build process, turned into the object and the machine code in a way, and then gets sent out in the update process. Mm. What was happening was it wasn't detectable in the source code, so none of the usual security checks in the source code right. um, were finding anything. But at the other end of the update cycle, in the update path, people were being sent updated software with this backdoor in it. Now, you know, you've got people like me who bang on like a broken record about you've got to keep your software up to date. It's got to be the latest version. Yeah. It's one of those mantras, isn't it? And of course, the poor people who actually followed that advice were the very ones that got hit with this. As it turned out, there was about, uh, I can't remember, about 18,000 of them. Um, and it was from March last year, March 2020, when they did the update then. So they were trying to work out how on earth did this happen? And it's only recently, as they pieced it together, the other bit that was really strange about this was that when it got to the other end of the update cycle, it was digitally signed. So it had the digital signature attached to it. Mm. This software was really from SolarWinds. As far as your Microsoft machine was concerned, it really was from SolarWinds. And the checks happened. Like the checks that you expect to happen, happened, and they came back with the answers you expected. So you wouldn't yep. worry. You wouldn't go digging. Users would be reassured it hadn't been tampered with. Yeah, Absolutely. And then when they dug a bit further, what they found that was happening was somebody had managed to get into the build servers of SolarWinds, and they had managed to get a script in there that injected their bit of code, a relatively small piece of code, um, into the SolarWinds code, and it was pretending to be a particular DLL, such that when it was built, it went through the build process, it was all digitally signed by SolarWinds. So it got injected just at the right point that nobody would have spotted it. It just snuck in under the door, got signed, and out it went into the out process so that it went, went to the updates. Yeah. No checks it would have picked it up at the SolarWinds end. No checks would have picked it up at the receiving end because it was signed, etc. And then, you, you know, a lot, a lot of intrusion detection systems, for example, will look for unusual activity on your network. 
Mm-hmm. But this bit of software was clever. It went to sleep for two weeks. Once it got in, it went to sleep for two weeks. Hmm. And only after that did it dial home. It dialed home to the command and control servers and said, right, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> I'm active. What do you want? <laughs> and it, it would allow them to come in and do uh, take files off um, or uh, just to come in as a general backdoor, actually, and implant other software as well. So yeah. anything they wanted, basically. Yes. But then came a, a slightly mysterious twist. There, there's been all sorts of twists and turns in this tale, in that what became clear was that Microsoft had been hit and they weren't sure whether Microsoft had been hit because they had installed SolarWinds that had a backdoor in it, or was it that Microsoft's 365 product had somehow been infiltrated and that was used to get the credentials to then go and attack SolarWinds right. build servers? Yeah. And that's all still a bit up in the air at the moment. So it, nobody quite knows what came first, the chicken or the egg here, um, but it's looking like somehow something was involved outside of SolarWinds that allowed them to get the credentials to go in to that build server. Either way you put it, it's solar winds that are now squarely flagged with having had this problem, as you can tell from their share price. Do you think it's one of the more clever attacks that have happened because there's so much thought put into how to sneak around? Yes. In, in the good old days, tradecraft, as they call it, was sort of the benchmark of all the espionage we ever did. And mm. it, this had an enormous amount of tradecraft in it. It, this wasn't just building something that was sophisticated, very clever. As with most things, I mean, it, it, it exploited what's called the picnic problem, uh, as in the problems in the chair, not in the computer. Yeah. So you you get the person to do something mm. um, that then lets something else happen, that lets something else happen. And it's these chained exploits that are the really clever ones. I mean, you know, you, you see some 16-year-old breaking into Talk Talk using a SQL injection tool that they can get on Carlix Linney. Yeah, um, and you're like, yawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, no, this was really thought through. This has, must have taken a couple of years. Now, obviously, many thousands of companies and organizations will have been running this compromised version of solar winds and potentially would have been vulnerable to attack. But it wasn't really an attempt to compromise thousands and thousands of companies, was it? It, it appears no. that they had particular targets in mind. This is, again, one of the really interesting parts about this, in that if you look... I suspect a lot of companies were caught in the crossfire because because we were then able to identify the command and control servers. So the indicators of compromise were very definite for where information had been exfiltrated from organizations. You could actually go and look and see using passive DNS, for example, you could see who had been not just attacked, but that attack had then be used to suck information out. And it turned out to be relatively few. A lot of them were large government departments in the U.S., in the UK, far less so. Uh, there was a, there was a mild, uh, I think, slightly knee-jerk reaction. It's quite interesting that the US took the the approach that rip it out, and they basically issued this emergency order to rip it out of everywhere. The UK, the National Centre for Cybersecurity, didn't say that. They said, well, first of all, find out if you're subject to it. Secondly, look for these indida- in- indicators yeah. of compromise. And then thirdly, close them off so no data can be exfiltrated, and then you can clean house uh, whilst, you know, nobody can get anything out. So that it was a much more uh, measured approach. Whereas, <laughs> How unusual. <laughs> uh, whereas the Americans, it was just going to rip it out. But the trouble with the rip it out approach is these things are so interconnected these days. Mm. You, don't, you don't always know the full ramifications of ripping it out of your system. It's a bit of an odd name for a company, though, isn't it? Solar Winds. 
<laughs> yes, well, the, solar winds. An awful lot of their names are um, sort of astronomical. I suspect whoever set it up was an astronomy buff, because actually the the product that was affected was called Orion. Mm. Uh, so they, they, yes, they they <laughs> seem to. But then I guess we're we're running short. We, we've gone through most of the fruits, like um, apples and acorns and all, all the rest of it. So, but maybe we're now onto astronomical metaphors. Crow, if you set up a software company, would you, would you name it after Uranus? <laughs> That's just a cheap schoolboy joke, and I apologise for that. Um, oh, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's that's all you need to do. Yeah. Crow, what have you got for us this week? <laughs> all right. Cue romantic music. Now, this show is being published a few days before Valentine's Day. And if you have a special someone in your life, I assure you that this is not the year you want to skip on, ooh, forgot, because it's been a pretty bad year for most of us. And if you're living with this person, um, they've been putting up with your crap day in, day out, because especially if they've been in lockdown, they there's been no respite at all. Has there? And um, so, you know, and also they'll feel bad if they didn't do anything. So you have the upper hand after that as well. You and send if you're them not- a card saying there is no one I would like to spend the rest of my life locked up in one room with than you. Because <laughs> now I've experienced it. <laughs> Way to kill the romance. <laughs> now, uh, there are people that uh, have that special person that they can't see or they're not living with. And how do you do that? How do you reach, you know, it's time to reach out, but what do you do? Send an emoji? Well, like- I, I, I quite like Diana Riggs, so I'd have to hold a seance, I suppose. Um, so that, <laughs> that, that isn't going to work for me. Um, yeah, good question. Well, I don't know. I say throw caution to the wind. I say reach out. Right. Digitally hug, digitally hug her. Okay. Digitally hug her right. somehow, the way you can. But there are some people out there that need to avoid throwing caution to the wind. Um, And that's those that are in brand new online relationships. They need to be extra careful because this is Valentine's month and Mm. romance scams are on the rise. Isn't that annoying? You have like one day, which did it always exist? See, I'm showing my ignorance. Oh, oh, that's a good question. Well, well, there is a Valentine Saint, I think, isn't there? There's a saint. Yes, yes, there is. Yeah, like that's why it's named. I'm after. sure. Yeah. I'm sure there has probably been a celebration for love, and buying cheap chrysanthemums at the nearest service station <laughs> for years and years. I'm sure that's that, that's probably been going on. That's the worst, honestly. <laughs> So, um, so even Interpol issued warnings a few weeks ago to a whopping 194 member countries. Mm. And it's, uh, the notice describes a new modus operandi on dating applications, which Interpol says, quote, takes advantage of people's vulnerabilities as they look for potential matches and lures them into sophisticated fraud schemes. Oh, well, that'd okay, be quite so- interesting to know about because even if you weren't a fraudster, if you were looking for love, if there was a method fraudsters were using to entangle you into a, a, a quasi-relationship with them, uh-huh. then you, if, if you were a person who was looking for love, you could use that same technique, but just not scam them at the end, right? Oh, right, because you're saying they're really successful. If the they're really scammers. successful at chatting up people online, that sounds like that sounds kind of useful to know about, right? Right. So turn their evil tricks to good mm. and use it for love. Mm. Interesting. The problem is, though, Graham, you see, when you actually look at the statistics, 
uh, of those romance scams, it's it's a it's a it's a numbers game because uh, for for every one that you would succeed in, you'd have to do about a thousand that didn't succeed. That is and what I'm of, doing. That is yeah. what I'm doing, Alan. Right? <laughs> most of us would lose heart at that point. <laughs> one in five thousand. If it's one in five thousand replies, that's good. <laughs> so so the notice here, the notice, the Interpol notice says new modus operandi. Right. So let me just describe how this works, and you guys tell me because I found it a bit like. Isn't this how they all work? So I guess I was missing the trick. Okay. okay, so users sign up to a dating app such as Tinder, eHarmony, Bumble. Bumble? There's one called Bumble. Yep, there is one called Bumble. Okay, so so a user signs up to a dating app and unknowingly ends up matching with a scammer, right? Obviously, they're right. a scammer. And once there's a level of trust that's been established, the scam artist will then turn the conversation over to a finance uh, or potential investments, encouraging the match to join them in a financial venture. Hmm. Right? Like, hey, let's invest in this. I've heard great things. Now, I guess anyone who is meeting someone for new, you'd probably go, oh, sounds interesting. But to appear genuine, the scammer will give the victim investment tips and lure them down a fake trading app, right? So oh, yeah. they sign up for financial products and they work their way up a so-called, it sounds like, you know, what's that called? That marketing pyramid scheme. Multi-level marketing. Yes, multi-level marketing under the supervision of the connection, right on the dating app. So they're, they're, I don't know, they're romance person. And in order to get the victim to part with their cash, the fraudster will provide incentives, just so like promising they will reach gold or VIP status, right? As if they follow their advice. Once the person has been milked for their cash, uh, they're locked out, of course, of their investment accounts and the scam artist goes poof, it, you know, effectively disappears completely, closing down accounts and laughs all the way to the tesla dealership <laughs> that you know that is quite different that is quite different from the original ones the ones that mm. uh, in the last few years that have been happening um if you look at the the data of a collective place like europol what typically was happening is is people were being drawn in and building these very intense relationships online mm. um and the, the the other party was in another country and then suddenly they would get a an urgent call such as i've been in an accident yes um, I just need five thousand pounds for my hospital fees, or to get home, or something like that. You know, wire me the money, and I'll be. And then, of course, you do, and you never hear from them again. So the, the fact that they're getting them to invest actually sounds quite a quite a new departure for them. Yes, it's a bit like crypto queen meets romance scammers. Mm. Um, yeah. So actually, that's a good. Let's go through those. So a few popular romance scams that are apparently still doing the rounds are, you know, exactly as you say, living or traveling outside the country of residence, so the UK or the US, whatever, whatever country they're focusing on. Um, they'll use things like working on an oil rig, or I'm in the military, or I'm a doctor with an international organization. I can't say which. Hush, hush. <laughs> you don't even have to claim to be working on an oil rig now, and that's why you can't come around. Do you? Because you just say, <laughs> you just say it's pandemic. I, li I live in Oxfordshire, <laughs> and and I'm not allowed to walk more than 300 meters from my house because we're bloody locked down yeah. again. Yeah. And as Alan says, after they build up the rapport, they're going to bring up a problemette, right? Such as, like, oh my God, sweet cheeks, I'd love to come see you, but I can't afford the plane ticket. Or as you say, Graham, there is a pandemic. There aren't any planes. Come. Yeah. There are no planes. How would you get money out then during a pandemic if you can't use the... Uh... Oh, uh, you I, I reckon the one that's going to come up and it's already started to come up is in overseas countries. Is it, in order to get my um, vaccination, they're going to oh. charge them in this country. 
Um, oh, and Alan, whereas yes. you, you lucky old thing, you've got the NHS and the Britain are going to give it to you free over here in wherever it is in the middle of Africa or something that they're, they're not going to allow that. You've got to, you know, say, and I can't get out of the country unless I've got a vaccination certificate. Please send me a thousand dollars. Yeah. That's very interesting. I was reading in private eye that obviously we've had, we've had, you know, a good deal of success vaccinating uh, a reasonable percentage of the population already. I think we've got over 10 or 12 million now. And they were saying in Africa, in total, the number of people who've been vaccinated is twenty-five, and it's like, well, yes, we, because there was a bidding probably, war, right? They're probably the presidents of the various countries as well. No, this is a global problem. We can't, we can't just vaccinate ourselves. We all have to be vaccinated to stop this becoming a problem. So, yeah, so I mean, that sounds quite plausible. You're going to be put to work as soon as you're vaccinated, right? It's like you know, in, in the airplanes, put your own mask first. Well, it's quite interesting when I when I got the text through because I've had my vaccine, my first vaccination. Ooh. And um, uh, I, I got the text through and it said, here's a link. And I'm all suspicious of yeah. SMS messages that have a link in them. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but, and the first thing it said was, "This we will never ask you for, your, for details other than your date of birth um, and your name to prove who you are. If anybody in any of this chain asks you the bank details, for example, then stop and phone the police. Uh-huh. So... The, the NHS are obviously can see it's happening yeah. um, somewhere. Um, and we've heard stories already in the UK of people just turning up at the doorsteps with old vulnerable people and saying, mm. pay us 90 pounds and you can have your vaccination. I, God knows what they're being vaccinated. Yeah. With, but Probably been injected with bleach. I heard that. I heard <laughs> a, uh, an expert <laughs> yes. on the topic uh, expounding the virtues. We don't even have to talk about that anymore. Oh, no. He's, he's gone, right? Yeah. <laughs> gone, right. Gone, but not forgotten. <laughs> The thing is, what I find amazing about romance scams is like, how can they be so attractive? Because the amount of legwork you have to do and the number of people you have to effectively woo, you know, is 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 huge. But it turns out the returns are hugely sweet. Yeah. They also are teams of people. Yeah. So you, you may see a picture um, because you'll note one of the things they don't do in those dating, those sort of online romance scams is they never have videos with you. Mm. Um You'll see pictures of some very handsome gentleman or some very pretty lady. Okay. Um, but actually, you typically that people are interacting with them by text, so you yeah. never hear their voice and you never see them moving. So it's actually a team of people. It's like a boiler house. Mm. So you've got um, you know you're interacting with what you think is one person, or thousands of um, men might be interacting with what they think is one pretty lady, and yet it's a team of people behind there who are interacting back with them. I just can't imagine you wouldn't notice. Like, I can't imagine not kind of going, okay, that's a weird turn of phrase, or they don't usually write like that. Like, uh, yeah. You would think. You would think, wouldn't you? Scripts. Yeah. You've got to remember as well that part of this is that they are preying on people who are, well, they're desperate for yeah. romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people will overlook all sorts of things when they get into that situation. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I I feel desperately sorry for them, and and one thing I think is really important. So I get my stern hat on here. Um, I I believe it. You know, you mustn't you mustn't victim shame because it is so easy in different circumstances to get drawn in. Mm. I once wrote an article called "The Seven Deadly Sins," which was about that there are the seven human traits which are exploited by all these people, um, mm. and one of them is the quest for love. I mean, it's you mm-hmm. know people want to be loved, and if they think there's someone and they're saying the right things. Um, it's just, it's, it's horribly easy to exploit them. The only thing I want more than love is a decent broadband connection. (laughs) Don't get me going. (laughs) Don't we all? Don't we all? I think I traded my wife for that. (laughs) (laughs) 
And just one point, we often think romance cams just affect women, right? That women are the ones that are targeted. And that whilst that is true, men have also fallen for romance scams. There was this guy just a few weeks ago, Andrew Marvin, lost £38,000 after he was scammed from three separate accounts. Mm-hmm. All three posing as single women. So guys, don't play the field online too much there. <laughs> The problem was that he was grieving, coming to terms with the death of his mom. And mm-hmm. so he was perfectly ripe for the romance scammer because they probably, as soon as they found that out, you know, when they yeah. probably posted it. And then they had a perfect in to go and listen to him. And the other thing, they get, they, they, they get found out. They get found as well because um, what, what happens is that on, on social media, we all, I mean, generation overshare, it's possible to look for people that, you know, have lost mm-hmm. parents, have lost loved ones, and they're going to be in a vulnerable position. Or for some other life-changing event has happened and, and they will find that they're in, uh, you know, they're in a vulnerable position. So those are the ones that they go after. Yeah. Basically, don't have any secret romances online. Tell at least one person you trust, because that's the worst. Two brains are much harder to dupe than one. And it's the whole, like, don't tell anyone, but, right. or this is our secret little affair, or yeah. all that kind of garbage um, can lead to a lot of trouble. Anyway, there you go. So, you know, don't be duped this Valentine's Day. And if you have someone you do love and trust, um, you know, hail they on Valentine's Day. There you go. Oh, wonderful. Last week, more than 3 billion unique sets of login credentials were shared online in what's likely to be the largest data breach of all time. Even though it appears no new login details are exposed, the sharing of so much data increases the risk that previously exposed credentials could be used to gain access to your online accounts, particularly where passwords have been reused. One Password's Watchtower feature can check for passwords that have been affected by breaches and tell you when a password has been reused. Don't wait for a data breach. Check out One Password at onepassword.com. And thanks to them for supporting the show. And welcome back. Can you join us at our favourite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Pick of the Week. <laughs> Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. Doesn't have to be security-related, necessarily. Better not be. Well, my Pick of the Week this week is not security-related, but it is Good. a board game. A board game made digital. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that I'm rather obsessed with chess. And mm. that is, of course, the greatest game in the universe. However... There are some other games which I think are rather fun, and one of them is the game of Scrabble. I love a game of Scrabble. I'm yes. quite a demon on a Scrabble board. I quite, are you? I, I'm not bad, Crow. I'm really not bad. There's quite a lot of strategy that goes on. It's not just going for the biggest number of points. Maybe I should put you against, uh, you know, the old uh, Chewbacca that I married. The old Wookiee. <laughs> the old Wookiee. All right. Well, he's, he's we'll, pretty we'll shit hard as well. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Now, one of the problems with Scrabble is, of course, now I'm locked away and there, there are limited opportunities to play a game of Scrabble. So I'd have to play online. And the official Scrabble app is an utter abomination. <laughs> In fact, Zoe Kleinman, friend of the show, has even written on BBC News an article all about how Scrabble fans hate the official Scrabble app and just how dire bloody bollocks it is. Because it is ghastly. And they've added all these jewels and 
pop-ups and stupid I tried. Car- I tried. Oh. I, I paid money for it. It's awful. It's, I took it off my phone. It's awful. And I kept on thinking, why has no one done a decent game of Scrabble online that I can play? And I think it's all tied up with Copyright. rights. Yeah, it's all yeah. tied up rights and things. And so, oh, mm. no one can do it. And then finally, I found one. It's been, it's been doing the rounds for a few years. It's called Lexulus. Lexulus. And they somehow have got away. I think they used to call themselves something which sounded more scrabbly, and they probably were told to stop, <laughs> stop using that name. Um, Scramble. <laughs> it is available on the web. It's also available for your iPhone, Android, and even BlackBerry. Um, and it is a <laughs> it's pretty- getting propped up now by Wall Street Brett's, isn't it? So, uh, you know, who knows? <laughs> and it is a pretty good replica i mean there are there are a few ch- there are some very minor changes with the scoring of some of the letters and i think you get one more tile in your rack so they've made a couple of minor changes so that they don't get sued to oblivion it is but the wor- essence is there it feels good oh yeah because it's it's not trying to be anything which it isn't you can pay a couple of quid for the paid version which i did because you don't want the ads popping up and things like that but it's a great game of scrabble and you can play it for free entirely online not scrabble Lexulus. Lexulus. Don't give them a copyright issue. And that is why it is my pick of the week. Fair enough. Uh, Alan, what's your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week is, well, I have to say it's probably become something of an obsession now in that um, <laughs> I, I like things to take my mind off of other things. So you might, my, my mind gets too intense when I'm thinking through some of these the best problems you deal with every day. And... So I quite like playing phones on my uh, games on my iPad or whatever. Oh, yeah. But I've been looking for simpler and simpler games to play. Things where I don't have to think very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come across one called Bubble Breaker, and I can't stop playing it. <laughs> my mum loves it too. <laughs> Are you, your mum knows this as well, Crook? Yes. Yeah. Bubble yeah. Bubble yeah. Breaker, and, and you just keep going for a higher and higher score, and you think, "How high can I go? How high can I go?" And you get to the point where you're just about, and then suddenly it all collapses, and you, think, "Oh God, no!" I'm, you know, it's, and you, I'll do it next time. I'll do it next time. Isn't it? It kind of like Tetris, but in reverse. Would you agree with that? Yeah, kind of? it is. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to. That's right. Ping your the bubbles, and you have to bubbles of all the same um, color. You need as many of those to pop at the same time, and it's uh, yeah. Gosh, I mean, but I find it, it now, even because I've got it on my phone as well as my iPad now. So even if I'm off waiting somewhere, I'll sneak the phone out. And that's what, if you find, see me on my phone, I'm probably playing Bubble Breaker, I'm afraid. <laughs> so if this was a real life game, you'd have to imagine yourself inside one of those play pens at Ikea, okay. where they start throwing the balls at you, the yellow balls and the blue balls. And your job is just to catch the one color bulb as, as much as you can. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and when you switch, you lose points, you see. So, yeah, and it comes faster and faster, more and more. And, but you, you, know. you, you convince yourself that there are strategies that are going to work. And yes. none of them do. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it a game which basically goes on forever until you fail? Like Tetris? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. But, then, but, then, but then it says, oh, good score, nearly there. <laughs> and it draws you in to say, just one more and you could have got higher. So yeah, all, you're, all you're doing is playing yourself. You're playing yourself all the time and you try to yeah. get higher and higher and higher scores. And it really is, it's addictive. Absolutely. How addictive. much psychological information you're giving away, Alan, I cannot <laughs> even tell you. <laughs> cool. Okay. So that's Bubble Breaker. Brilliant. There you go. Two games. Crow, what's your pick of the week? Mine is not a game. Okay. 
So my pick of the week has to do with Ikea and sofas, Graham, which oh, is why you brought them up. Really, I know. Yeah. A lot of us have pieces of Ikea furniture in our houses. A um, lot of those people have Ikea sofas. I, in fact, have two clip-ins, which I've had for like 10 years, and they were secondhand when I got them. That's the type of Ikea sofa, is it? The clip that's a type of Ikea. Yeah, that's the one problem. You do need to know the type of sofa you have <laughs> for this pick of the week to work, which is not always easy. Now, uh, the thing is, is, you know, uh, I obviously don't have the original covers, right? Because I have a hairy husband and I used to have a very... <laughs> Beautiful, floofy cat, and who loved to use it as a scratching post and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and IKEA, of course, do sell sofa covers. But in the UK, at least, there's only maybe three or four different styles. Oh. Um, and that's the problem with IKEA, right? Not everyone wants to have the same exact sofa no. that everyone else has. Does that mean you have to go out and buy a new sofa from a fancy place? No, 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 it does not. You go to BEMS, B-E-M-Z, okay, website. Yeah. It is an EU-based store that sells sofa covers specifically for Ikea sofas, all of them, right? So I would go in there and say, yeah, I'm choosing the clip-in, and yeah, it's the two-seater one. And then I go and look, and there's maybe about 300 different types of covers that I can have. They will make them for me. They will charge me maybe 100 quid, maybe 200 quid, maybe 300 quid at the very out, you know, at the, at the yeah. high level, at the expensive level. Um, which, and they sell them in the U.S. as well. In the U.S., they're actually even cheaper. So, uh, BEMS, people, if you need a little, a little cheap refresh in your house, check out BEMS. And they and, specialize uh, in covers for only IKEA. Only IKEA. Yeah, they're, they're IKEA partner, but somehow BEMS offers many, many more options than they offer in store. So, well, that sounds like a really good pick of the week because loads of people do have IKEA furniture. Well, thank you very much, Graham. And if you puke, if you puke all over the sofa, you do you do that often? red wine or something then you want to fix it don't you <laughs> very good and be lots of lots of people at home in the moment wanting to do something for diy as well aren't they? yeah they, they, yes if, if you can't quite muster up the energy to repaint the kitchen then changing the sofa covers is probably the next best thing a hundred percent exactly and the removables you can wash them in the washing machine if you don't have a ginormous sofa so anyway check out bems they're amazing to be honest alan you're not going to fix up the kitchen or change the sofa covers you're going to be playing bubble breaker uh, too true, too true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online. What's the best way for folks to do that? Oh, I, I, I'm most active on Twitter, I suppose, which is Prof Woodward. Cool. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity, no G, Twitter and last have a G. And we're also on Reddit. Just look for the Smash Insecurity subreddit. And don't forget to ensure you never miss another episode. Subscribe in your favourite podcast apps, such as Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and Spotify. And huge thank you to this week's episode sponsor, 1Password, and to our wonderful Patreon community. It's thanks to all these people that this show is free for all. For episode show notes, sponsorship information, guest lists, and the entire back catalogue of more than 212 episodes, check out smashingsecurity.com. More than 213, actually. Just yeah, I thought you were going to correct me. I left that for you. You're welcome. Yeah. I <laughs> Until next time. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
course, this show is being published the day before Valentine's Day. And if you have a special someone in your life, I assure you that this is not the year you want to... Excuse me, did someone say something? Sorry, I was... It's not coming out the day before Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is Sunday. Is it? Yes. Oh, you see, I thought it was on Friday. God, see, I was all panicking. I wouldn't get myself. (laughs) Sorry, I really tried hard to pull back that nerdy bit of me. Maybe you could say a few days before Valentine's Day. Oh, hey, novel idea, Graham. Thank you. (laughs) 